please turn to Luke chapter 24 with me. Luke chapter 24, we are nearing the end of the Gospel of Luke, uh, Lord willing. About three more, including this morning, three more sermons here in, in this Gospel. And uh, as you turn there, just a encouragement to you, if you haven't already done this, uh, I'd love to encourage you to get your picture taken for our directory. Uh, we'd love to get to know one another better, and the directory is a great way to do that. It's a essential a tool for us to help help uh, everyone know each other's names, and so encourage you to to do that uh, after service if you haven't already done that there on the in the in the hallway, kind of at the far end of the hallway this morning. Luke chapter twenty four, we're looking at verses thirty six through forty three this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we read these verses, and I'm going to read a little bit beyond where we're ending this morning to give us an idea of the context of everything that's taking place and why Jesus is doing what he's doing here in verses 36 through 43 and and how it's going to affect the ministry he calls the disciples to. Verse 36, remember that Jesus has talked to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and these disciples have gone back to Jerusalem, have told the eleven and those that are gathered with them what's going on and It says in verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they, were still, while, they, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. You may be seated. May we be encouraged through the reading of God's word this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we thank you for your word, and we pray that just as you did with the disciples, you would open our hearts, our minds, to understand things that are written here. And as we look at this passage, help us to understand what it means to have a, a Savior who has been physically, literally re- resurrected, that to shape our lives. I pray for those who are hurting this morning, who are suffering loss or discouragement, that these words would, through your Spirit, empower them to live the life you've called them to live. Help that be true for all of us. We pray in your Son, Jesus' name this morning. Amen. In the summer of 1786, a young man wrote a letter to his father, sat down, and he told his father about his studies at the university. And he said in the letter that one of the things that he was struggling with was the way that the professors weren't addressing the doubts that many of his friends had. He said many of his friends were struggling with doubts as they were reading some of these new authors and the skepticism that these authors had about some aspects of Christianity he was worried about his friends, and he was concerned that the professors weren't addressing the concerns that his friends had. Well, his father, and again, sometime around the summer of 1786, his father writes back, says, Son, you know, those authors aren't even worth talking about. They aren't even worth spending your time thinking about. Your professors are right not to, to deal with them, and don't even think anymore of it. Well, the young man's name was Friedrich Schleiermacher, and he would become the father of liberal theology. And in January of 1787, so six months later, 
he wrote to his father again. And he admitted that it wasn't his friends who were the ones who were doubting. He said, Father, it's, it's me. I'm the one who doubts. And I know that you believe, Father, that we have a, an obligation to have faith in God, but, but I don't. I, I don't believe the person who called himself the Son of Man, Jesus, I don't believe that he's eternal God. I don't believe that he died on the cross for my sins. And he, his father read that letter, it, it, it broke his heart. And Schleiermacher would go on to, to lay a foundation for what would become liberal theology. He would deny the divinity of Jesus Christ. He would deny the virgin birth. He would deny the importance of the resurrection. He would say, you know what, the disciples saw Jesus, and they saw something that Schleiermacher would call the, the God consciousness in Jesus. And, and they saw this God consciousness in Jesus without knowing about the resurrection before that all happened, if it happened. And so we don't need to believe in the resurrection either. All that we need to do is strive for God consciousness. And he would say that the resurrection, believing in it or disbelieving in it, has no effect practically on a person's life. A person can lead a, a moral good life without believing in the resurrection. We come here to Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 43. And in these verses, we, we see a resurrected Lord, a, a Lord who has a, a physical body. And we see a Lord, a risen Lord, who eats a fish. And I was reading this story with my children last night, and I, I asked them, I said, now, now guys, why do you think that this is such an important passage? Why would Luke write down that, that Jesus appeared to his disciples and ate a fish? My daughter Hannah said, Dad, I don't know, but you have 15 hours to figure it out. I said, well, I know. I'm trying to help you. Why is this important? I mean, does it matter? Is it just kind of a, well, some people can believe it, some people don't. It doesn't really matter one way or the other. Let me just give you one illustration to show you why I think this is such an important doctrine for us to understand and to believe, that it's not a doctrine of minor importance. I was a youth pastor a few years ago, and I was talking with the youth about the resurrection and about eternity and, and heaven. And as we were talking about heaven, I said, now, I, I want you guys to tell me, what are the things about life that you enjoy the most? What are the things that you enjoy doing the most? And I had a whiteboard there, and they started listing off things about life they enjoy. These are teenagers. They said, you know, we enjoy watching TV. We enjoy video games, enjoy sports, enjoy running, enjoy learning things, reading, writing, sleeping in. I mean, all the th eating with my friends, going out to, to fellowship with other friends. And we listed all these things that they enjoy about life. And I would ask you, what do you enjoy about life? Maybe you'd come up with a, a similar list. I said, okay, good. Now, how many of you uh, tell me how many of you know something that we'll be doing in heaven? And they started listing. This list was much shorter. I said, um, singing songs. Okay, wrote that down. That's about it. I said, now how many of you want to go to heaven? Everybody raises a hand. I said, why? Why do you want to go to, like all the things that you enjoy about life, are here, and none of those things are over there. Why on earth do any of you want to go to heaven? If I said that I enjoy these things, and I said that heaven was going to be this, I certainly wouldn't want to go. Why do you want to go to heaven? What possible enjoyment can there be in heaven if, if nothing of the things that, that bring you joy in this life are going to be in the next? There's something profound that we see here in the simple act of Jesus eating a fish. What we see is that the life to come is much more similar to the life that we lead now than we perhaps might understand. 
we are not going to be some disembodied spirits kind of wandering around the cosmos. We're not going to be like these little beams of light that kind of travel in semi-consciousness across the universe. We are going to be physical beings. Jesus Christ comes back in his resurrected body, the body that he's going to inhabit for all of eternity, and he eats a fish. There's something still very physical about Jesus, and there's something very physical about you and me. And I would suggest to you that the reason that the students listed some of these things that they enjoy are because God has designed us to enjoy those types of things. He has in, he's designed us to be physical beings who inhabit a physical universe. In 1 Peter and really throughout Scripture, God calls us to think about our future inheritance and to live differently as we think about the future. For example, imagine if you went into to work tomorrow morning and your employer called you into his office and he said, hey, you have been doing some fabulous work. I'm just really impressed. I'm, I'm giving you a raise and it will be reflected on your salary uh, paycheck in two weeks. In fact, I'm, I'm doubling your your pay. Now, even though you didn't have that money in your hand right at that moment, it would affect how you felt in the present, right? And over the next two weeks, you would live your life differently, knowing what's going to take place when you receive that next paycheck, because you know what's coming. The future affects the present. And God in his word calls us to look at the future, to look at the future promises that he's made us, and be excited in the present. And as we see Jesus Christ here in his resurrected body, Luke wants us to understand that the message we're witnesses to, this, this future inheritance that we have that we're proclaiming to people, we'll see this as we look at the text again in a few weeks, this message that we proclaim about the future, it's going to be physical as well. It's not just this, this spiritual essence that we have, it's this physical body that we inhabit as well. In other words, as, as we look at the, the central point of this text, I, I think it's saying this, look, because we have a risen Lord who eats a fish, we are going to be participating in a physical world for all of eternity. There's something very profound about that. Well, let's do this. Uh, let's look at the story, and then let's look at some principles based upon the story. And so let's first look at the story and as we look at the story, we see some distressed disciples who encounter a very comforting Christ. And look at the text with me, if you would. And in fact, let's go back a little bit in the chapter. Remember, as we came to verse 13 of Luke 24, we, we encountered these disciples. And these disciples in verse 14 are having a conversation. As we look through the rest of that story of those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, we see that they were confused disciples. They were talking about how Jesus Christ had been a great prophet. They were talking about how he had been rejected. They were talking about how their hope had been in him. And they were talking about how some very strange things had taken place recently. Jesus joins them on the road to Emmaus and he opens up the scriptures to them. And they're able to see how all these things that were confusing to them fit right in line with what scripture says. Jesus comes, he eats, begins to break bread with him. As he breaks the bread, they recognize who he is, and he disappears. Well, we pick up the story with them arriving back in Jerusalem. They, it's probably about 9 o'clock whenever Jesus vanishes, maybe 9 o'clock in the evening. And they get up, they immediately leave the table, they go outside, and they make the journey, the seven-mile journey, back to Jerusalem that very night. It's Probably now they arrive back, it's 10, 30, 11 o'clock when they arrive back in Jerusalem, and they tell the disciples what's taking place, and the disciples tell them about Jesus appearing to Peter. We don't have a record of that appearance to Peter, but it's, it's referenced several times throughout Scripture. And now, there's confusion. In fact, look at verse 36, and it's interesting, right? They're talking again. <laughs> Just like they were talking on the road to Emmaus, they were so excited trying to figure these things out. 
now they're, they're talking some more. They have some more data. And, they, and these, I think these two disciples who are on the road to Emmaus are, are talking about the things that Jesus had told them. Said, okay, guys, we, we still don't understand exactly everything and how it's piecing together. But we saw Jesus and, and, and here's how the scriptures said that the things that we've encountered had to take place. And, 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 and they're, they're going through that with everybody. And suddenly Jesus appears. And he says these words that seem to have almost no effect, peace to you. And as he says peace, they freak out. They're scared out of their minds. And the disciples, as they've encountered Jesus or heard stories about Jesus, we've seen them constantly spiritualizing things. So for example, they Earlier, the disciples who are on the road to Emmaus say that the women, they didn't say the women saw an angel, it says they saw a vision of an angel. And now they see Jesus, he's there in their midst, and they think that they're seeing a ghost. There's something very uh, frightening about death. It's not unusual for us to find death scary. I can remember my first nightmare, or the first nightmare that I remember, I was about three and a half, four years old. My little brother had just been born, and he was a, you know, I was very proud of my little baby brother. He was this beautiful baby. Um, one minor flaw, he had a, a head that looked like it could have been Charlie Brown's. I mean, he had this, this enormous head, but besides that, he was fine. And um, I, we got the baby home, and I'm very excited about little Andrew. But uh, one night, I, I have this dream, and in, in my dream, we're all sitting at the dinner table. My parents invite this, this stranger to come in and, and eat dinner with us, and the stranger says that he doesn't want to eat our food. He wants to eat my baby brother. And so he grabs Andrew, and uh, sorry if this image is too frightening for you. Um, he, he opens his mouth, and he picks up my brother, and he's getting ready to swallow my brother, but my brother has this big Charlie Brown head that he can't fit into his mouth, and so he keeps opening his mouth bigger and bigger and bigger, and that's when I wake up screaming. I'm so fr- I run to the crib, and I'm, I'm trying to, to pull myself up and, and look into the crib to see if my brother is there. And that's when my parents come into the room. What's going on? And I'm screaming, I think someone's eaten Andrew. Yeah. Frightened out of my mind. Yeah. Death is scary. There's, there's finality to death. There's separation that exists. And even a three-and-a-half, four-year-old can understand that death is not a, a pleasant thing. The disciples have experienced a profound shock as they have tried to come to grips with the reality that that Jesus is separated from them. And as they encounter Jesus, they're not sure what to do with this new piece of information. There's fear. And they believe that the spirit world has somehow manifested itself in the physical world. They're frightened. So talk to evangelical Christians sometimes. They they share this, this fear of the spirit world. And yes, there's this finality to death, but there's this fear that the spirit world can intrude. And in fact, I was Whitney and I were talking one time with a uh, a mom, and uh, she was talking about, she was a good friend, she was talking about how she believes that the ghost of her grandmother, her grandmother's soul, is is still with her in some ways and can give her comfort or advice. And we're talking about, you know, that's, that's not the right way to, to view the spirit world. In fact, um, I kind of thought that she was kidding. And so I, in my hilarious sense of humor, um, I took a picture of our children, like there's a picture that we've taken with our kids and her kids and some other kids, and I, <laughs> uh, I, I photoshopped Casper, the friendly ghost, into the picture playing with our children or whatever, and I, I emailed it to her. Freaked her out, you know. What are you doing, you know, like, it just, just terrified her, you know. So I sent her a nut, no, I didn't, I, I'm sorry, I didn't know. 
there's this finality to death, and, and even those of us who are believers, we, I think we struggle sometimes to understand how does the spirit world interact with, with our world. There's the sadness as we think about the finality of death. You think about that um, poem by Edgar Allan Poe, The Raven, and he was trying to find this, this melancholy subject, and he thought, well, unrequited love is the most melancholy of all subjects, and, and what is more what love is more unrequited than the love of a lost one? There's those, those lines in there where he's, he's talking to the raven. He believes this raven is a spirit sent from beyond. He says, uh, you know, tell me within the, uh, within the distant Aden if this, this soul with sorrow laden shall cra- uh, clasp the radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore. And in other words, will this soul that's so sorrowful, my soul, be able to someday see and hold this one whom I've lost? And the raven says, you know, not, nevermore. That's not how he says it, but no, never more. That won't happen. Not going to happen. There's this fear that we have of death. The disciples here are distressed. They're startled. They're frightened. They think they see a, a spirit. And verse 38 shows us the, the comfort that Jesus tries to offer them. Said to them, why? Two questions here. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? What is it that's making you uneasy? What is the source of your unease? And, and why do you doubt that it's, it's me who's here? And then Jesus, in his graciousness, offers them uh, two proofs here. And the, the first proof he offers them is the, the proof of their senses. He says, I want you to to look and I want you to touch. Look at the text. It says, uh, see my hands, Uh, look at them, and and look at my feet, look at the markings on them, see that it is I myself. In other words, this isn't some demonic spirit who's inhabiting a a physical body that's kind of like this phantom. Look and and see that it's me. Uh, Touch me, use your hands, touch me and, and see a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. There's something physical about my body. And, and we're seeing here some very interesting things about the resurrected body. Remember, Jesus, as he was seen by Mary Magdalene, isn't recognized her, recognized by her. The disciples on the road to Emmaus don't immediately recognize him. There's something that's, that's different about his body, and yet there's something that's similar enough that he can say, look and touch and, and see that it's me. That's the first test that he offers, the first proof. He says this, verse 40, and he shows them very graciously. They see his hands. They see his feet. This verse 41 tells more about their reaction. It says that they they still disbelieve. It's not until we see him open the scriptures to them that their minds are going to be open. They're going to understand all that's taking place. But they, they look, they see, they touch, and they still don't fully believe. But it, this disbelief comes from a different place. It says they disbelieved for joy, and they're marveling. They, they see, and they, 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 they touch, and their minds still can't quite grasp all that's happened, but the the dominant emotion here is they, as they see and they touch and, and, and they, they think about these things, the dominant emotion is one of overwhelming joy and wondering, how can this be? And then, then, this is very interesting as well to me, he looks around and he realizes their doubts. And he says, is there anything to eat around here? <laughs> you guys got anything to eat? While well, I'm waiting for you to figure out what's going on, can I have something to eat? No, this is a second proof that he offers. Disciples look around, you got anything? Find some fish. They bring it to Jesus. Do you remember that story, Green Eggs and Ham? where Sam I am tries to get his friend to eat green eggs and ham and there's just this this huge uh you know this huge battle that ensues kind of like 
trying to get your children to eat something. There's a huge battle, and she's trying to get them to taste these green eggs and ham, you know, you know, on a boat with a goat, on a train in the rain. There's all this, 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 this huge effort to get him to eat the green eggs and ham. And then there's that, that moment at the end of the story where he says, look, if you'll let me be, I'll, I'll eat them. And then there's that moment where all the dialogue stops and, and, you know, the little mouse and the goat and the ship captain and the train engineer, they're all watching him as he holds that, that green egg and ham to see what he's going to do with it. And then he eats it and he's excited. Everyone starts cheering. That's kind of the picture I have in my mind. It's, it's one of the most awkward meals I think Jesus ever ate because they find this fish and then they just kind of watch him. He starts eating it. As I've said before, this is a, it's a mundane act. It's, it's simple. It's commonplace. He's just eating a fish. Who cares? Why, why pay all the attention to a guy sitting there eating a fish? It's, it's mundane, and yet it's also incredibly profound. Here is one who has died been raised from the dead, has a new resurrected body, and in this body that he's going to inhabit for eternity, he eats a fish. In other words, for eternity, Jesus Christ is going to have a physical body that can eat. The, this, the, the physical world, the, 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 the things that we can touch and, and, and look at and, and see and mold and, and do things with, we've been designed to inhabit a universe with those types of things. And we're going to receive a body that will continue to do those types of things. It's very, very crucial for us to understand this. This is not some abstract doctrine that we can't go out of this room this morning and we can't do anything with it. There's something real and profound about the truth that Jesus Christ eats a fish. And that's why Luke records it. You say, well, Daniel, why? Why is it so important to believe in this? Why must I believe in a literal, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? Let me give you four reasons here, four principles for why it's important to believe in a literal, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Number one, number one, it assures us that death's victory is not final. Why is it so important to believe in a physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? It assures us that death's victory is not final. That's not to say that death's victory isn't real. I think sometimes we as evangelical Christians uh, make a mistake as we talk to people who've lost loved ones. And, and maybe you've been the recipient of uh, this mistake that we sometimes make. Sometimes whenever we are trying to comfort a person who's lost someone whom they've loved, we almost, we almost trivialize their loss. We say, well, yeah, we've lost them now, but there's a resurrection. It's almost like we're saying, yeah, you kind of feel bad, but it's not real because they're going to come back to life someday. That's not how Scripture speaks of death. It's not how Scripture speaks of death's victory. The victories that death achieves are real and tragic. Whitney lost her grandmother a few years ago and as her grandmother's health was failing, we, we tried to, to get her to Texas so that she could be able to say goodbye to her grandmother in time. And so we're, we're finding a plane ticket. We're getting her to the airport. We're praying that the Lord holds off and allows her to see her grandmother one last time. And, and by God's grace, she was able to do that. But as her grandmother was taken from her, it was a real loss. It wasn't pretend. And some of you have experienced death very, very closely. You've lost a, a grandparent or you've lost a, a parent or a sibling. Some of you have, have lost children. And, and we don't say, well, they kind of, it's not like they, they pretend died. You know, there's that story in 
in uh, Tom Sawyer, where Tom Sawyer's hiding in the church while he, he sees his own funeral take place because people believe that he's dead. And then he and his friends come down from the rafters, and there's this, this big celebration, kind of this big joke that he played on everyone. And sometimes I think we treat death like that. Like, well, you know, there's a resurrection, and so it's kind of like we go through the motions now, but it's not like death has a real victory. No, the victories that death achieves are real and tragic but they are temporary. And so we grieve, but we don't grieve like those who have no hope, do we? In fact, it's interesting. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15 uh, several times in the next few minutes, but 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul is, is talking about the victory of death, and as he talks about death's victory, he says, um, he says this in verse 24, then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And he goes on in the end of the chapter, and he says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? As we see a resurrected Jesus Christ inhabiting a real physical body, we acknowledge that death does achieve temporary victories, but they are just that, temporary. The second thing that we're assured of here, we're assured that the physical world is just as good and real as the spiritual world. Now, listen carefully to what I'm saying here. The physical world is just as good and real as the spiritual world. I, I'm not saying that materialism is good. I'm not saying that we, we love the, the physical things of this world. I, I'm not saying that we, we uh, set all our hopes and our dreams on the physical world. But what I am saying is this. There have sometimes been these heresies that have been taught throughout church history that material things themselves are evil. So, for example, the Gnostics were an early church heresy, and they would, they would teach people that, that physical things in and of themselves are bad, and that the physical world is a bad place. And, and what I want you to see as we see a resurrected Jesus Christ inhabiting a, a physical body, what I want you to see is that the physical world is not bad. The physical world is not evil. It's not like the spiritual world is the real world and the physical world is kind of like this make-believe world and someday we'll leave behind the physical world forever and just inhabit a spiritual world. Or, or right now we should pretend like the physical world isn't all that important. That's not the case. As we see a resurrected Jesus Christ inhabiting a physical body, we see that the physical world is is real, and it's, it's good. In fact, um, look over at, uh, if you want to take just a moment, look at 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, it's in the, the T section of the New Testament. At first and Second Timothy and Titus. And in 1 Timothy, Paul is addressing those who would argue that all material things are bad. And listen to what Paul tells Timothy. He says, now, the Spirit says expressly that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. In other words, there's going to be these false teachers who get involved in this, these occult practices. There's going to be this, this fascination with the occult and this, this spiritual um, demonic world that they, they get involved in. There are going to be these liars whose consciences are seared. And these, these false teachers are going to teach some false things about the material world. It says that they're going to forbid marriage. They're going to require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Catch what's going on here. There are going to be these false teachers, and these false teachers are going to begin saying that the material world is bad. They're going to say, you know, you, you can't get married. You can't eat certain foods. Uh, you need to deny your involvement in all things physical and remove yourself from the physical world as much as possible. That's not a 
biblical understanding of material things. Listen to what Paul goes on to say. He says, they, they forbid that these things that God, this is verse 3, that God created to be received with thanksgiving. Verse 4, for everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. That's a very important concept. In fact, turn over to chapter 6, and we see something else. We see that the, uh, verse 10, he says, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many, many pangs. And so clearly, love of material things is not a godly way to view the material world, but neither is the rejection of the material world or the rejection of all things physical. He says in verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, and this is very important for us to understand, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, this is why understanding that there's a physical resurrected Lord is so important, because as you go out this morning and you begin to live in a physical world, there can be a temptation to say, well, the physical world isn't ultimate, the physical world isn't real, and it's not good, and, and I, I, I can somehow achieve the righteousness of God by rejecting all things physical, by just becoming this, this spiritual being. And what I want you to see is that God has created you, in, not just in the future, but in this present world, God has created you to exist in a physical world. And the physical world is real and can be used for God's glory. I'm reading a very interesting book right now called Echoes of Eden. Echoes of Eden. And if you're a person who's kind of artistic and enjoys creating things or enjoys literature, enjoys performance arts, it's a, I highly encourage you to read this book. It, it talks about how the believer is able to use the arts and the creative elements for the, the glory of God. And there's this great quote in there by C.S. Lewis, and I, I don't have it word perfect, but he says something like this. He says, the greatest poems and other artistic works, for that matter, are written by poets who believe that there's something greater than poetry. The greatest poems are written by poets who believe that there's something greater than poetry. In other words, the, the poets who write the greatest po poems, the, the, the people who produce the greatest art, are those who realize that, that art isn't the ultimate, that, that art is this means that God has given us to to glorify Him. And so a person with a God-centered perspective of the material world says, okay, I understand that God has placed me in the material world. I am not to love the physical things of this world, but God has placed me in a physical world to bring glory to Him. And so I can exist in the physical plane. I can exist in this physical world, and I can use these things that God has given me to bring him glory, and to enjoy. The person who doesn't understand the reality of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ doesn't understand rightly how to view this physical world. They don't understand that the simple act of eating a fish can be an act that brings glory to God who's given us fish, given us food, given us things, to use for his glory and our joy. That is a profoundly important truth for us to grasp and one that I think we so often fail to believe. The fact that Jesus inhabits a physical body means that the physical world is real and it's good and it can be used as an instrument to bring God glory. Let's look thirdly here at a third thing we think, a third thing we see about what it means that the Lord is risen. Jesus Christ's physical resurrection assures us that the body and world we inhabit in eternity will be physical. In other words, we don't just go out here this morning and live in a physical world, but we're going to continue to live in a world with physical things. The body, the world that we inhabit are, are both going to be physical I mentioned 1 Corinthians 15, and so turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to see what 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 about this resurrected body. Um, as you go through 1 Corinthians 15, uh, just kind of an outline of the chapter, we see uh, this question, what if there's no resurrection in verses 13 through 19? And then in verses 23, uh, 20 through 34, he says, well, what if there is a resurrection? What does that mean for us practically? And then he begins talking about the nature of our resurrected bodies in verse 35. Verse 35, he says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? In other words, there's kind of this doubt, okay, like what kind of bodies are these, these resurrected bodies going to be? And they're, they're, it's kind of a skeptical question. And Paul answers and says in verse 36, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of, of wheat or uh, of some other grain. In other words, the bodies that you and I have right now are not bodies that are capable of making it for eternity. And some of you are more profoundly aware of that than others. (laughs) And perhaps the younger you are, the less you realize the truth that the body that you have right now isn't going to make it for eternity. It's not equipped for it. I was uh, really um, not feeling too well beginning about two weeks ago. I had this fever and kind of the the first day... that's uh, not a big deal. It's just a fever. No other symptoms. Second day, third day. Uh, about the fourth day, I, th- I start getting very frustrated. Uh, why is this not going away? What drugs can I possibly take to rid myself of this unpleasantness? And how much longer will it continue? Uh, and I am not very patient with this. And, and every day that went by, I got more and more concerned and wondering what's going on with this, this, uh, this, this body of mine, right? Some of you suffer from, from chronic illnesses. There are things that you struggle with on a daily basis, and you are more profoundly aware than others of us that, that this body is not a body that's going to make it for another hundred years, much less, much less eternity. We have aches and pains and different things that take place in our body that reveal this, this body has an expiration date. <laughs> Paul understands that reality. He says, look, this, this body isn't, isn't going to make it. This body, need, we need, something else needs to take place because even though this body isn't going to make it, God has designed us to be beings who inhabit a physical world. And he goes on and he says, but God gives it a body as he's chosen and each kind, this is verse 38, to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. There's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory, and so it is with the resurrection of the, of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. He's talking there about a a body that is is equipped with the the Holy Spirit. And so there's this this physical body that's going to perish, and yet there's this spiritual body that's also physical, but it's it's this Holy Spirit-empowered body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. It's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are, are those who are of the dust, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. In other words, you and I are going to have bodies that are like Jesus' body here. His body is similar to his old body, and yet it's dissimilar. My children, uh, whom I love so dearly, I want to be clear with that, uh, sometimes struggle, I think, to know what I look like or what Whitney looks like. It's like they kind of inhabit this world, and I, I think they have a vague understanding of what I look like, but they aren't that confident of what I look like. I, sometimes we're at large group settings, and I'll look over, and one of my children will be standing next to another adult like he thinks it's his mom. And I'm like, hey, kid, you know, look up. 
whoa, and kind of walk away, kind of dazed, you know, not really sure what's going on. A while ago, I started noticing that my children would say, oh, that guy kind of looks like daddy, or that person looks like daddy, and I'm like, really? Um, do you know how good looking I am? I don't, and what I realized is they were basically saying any person with glasses looked like dad, and so um, I, I, I began to tell them different things. You know, guys, I have brown hair. It's kind of darker. So if you see a person who's blonde, that's not a guy that looks like your daddy. Uh, it was so, you know, and it's like the, your, your, my children don't know what I look like. They don't know who I am sometimes, I think. The disciples, it's like they've, they've never truly seen who Jesus really is until this moment. Yes, this new body has some similarities to the old body, but it's, but it's profoundly different as well. And as they see Jesus, it's like they're seeing him for the first time, and they, they understand something different. This new body that Jesus has is a body that's going to last forever. And again, let me say it once more. You and I are physical creatures. We inhabit a physical world. Jesus inhabits a physical world. And now, as they see the resurrected Lord, he has a body that is going to be able to make it for eternity. It's not a body that's going to suffer decay and illness and all the weaknesses that our present bodies experience. We quote C.S. Lewis one more time here because I think he gets some of these things so right and says them so well. There's his uh, children's fantasy series, The Chronicles of Narnia, in the last battle, the last book of the series, he's a character is talking about the land of Narnia, where they've inhabited and how it no longer exists, and now, it's, now they're in, in heaven. And he says this, he says, the old Narnia, it was only a, a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here, just as in our own world, England, and all that it is, is only a shadow or copy of something in the real world, in heaven. You need not mourn over Narnia. All of the old Narnia that matters, all the dear creatures, have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it is different. Listen to this. It's different. As different as a real thing is from a shadow, or as waking life is different from a dream. One other character in the novel says, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a bit like this. That's profound, and it's biblical. When I talked with the youth about the things that they love in this life, the things that they love, not all of them at least, were bad things to love in terms of, of, of enjoying these things. And I would argue to you that the reason they enjoyed these things is that they're, they're a shadow or a, a taste of the things that we're ultimately going to love and enjoy for eternity. They're like, like shadows of that which is ultimate and, and real. Jesus, as he eats a fish, confirms this to us. The things that we enjoy here are things that we're going to enjoy on into eternity. Last thing I want you to think about, number four, the resurrection, the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ assures us that our Savior is fully God and fully man. You and I needed a, a Savior who would not simply be able to be God, not simply be a really good man, but a person who could suffer in our place and achieve for us the righteousness of God that we could not achieve on our own and have the capability of bestowing that righteousness on us. In Revelation 21 John writes, I, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The, the first heaven and the first earth had, had passed away. And, and 
the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Jesus Christ, the Lamb, fully God, fully man. And his resurrected body here that the disciples can see and touch and watch him eat a fish assures him, assures them that the one in whom they are placing their faith in is fully God, fully man, with the ability to deliver them from their sins and place them in a relationship with God for all eternity. Two weeks we're going to return to this passage and we're going to to see what it means to proclaim this message of forgiveness of sins. And and what I want you to think about as we we, we close and think about this last point is, is simply that a person can enjoy eternity with God, a physical eternity with, with real things, things we can look at and touch, and taste. A person can enjoy eternity with God only through placing their faith in the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ. If you've never done so, if you've never received forgiveness of sins, the things that separate us from God because we've failed a perfect holy God, I would encourage you today, even now, to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus eats a fish that the risen Lord eats is not some remote theological thing for us to know and and keep in the back of our mind somewhere, but it's a, a theological truth that affects us as we sit down in a seat this morning. It affects us as we walk out into the physical world, and it affects us as we think about the reality that we have the opportunity to live in a physical world for the glory of God in a unique way and have the opportunity to do so on into eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the life that we have in his name. Give us your grace, we pray in his name. Amen.